your brain might turn to putty. But there's still a chance to learn. We'll be your study buddies. We're going to talk about some stuff and make research cool. <laughs> Blast off. Blast off. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Study Buddies. My name is Paola Sanchez-Abreu. And my name is Taylor Collins. Welcome to our little podcast where we bring you new developments in science and psychology. And sometimes we throw in some other things. Yes, we do. How you doing this week, Taylor Collins? Um, I am actually fantastic. 10 out of 10, uh, 5 golden retriever stars. <laughs> Whoa. Because, yeah, those are different than normal stars. Yeah. Because I was dog-sitting this past weekend, and let me just tell you, um, dog-sitting, I think, is the best thing that could ever happen to someone. Like, normally, you have to pay to have a pet, right? Like, you pay money, Mm -hmm. and then also you have to pay to go other places and stay there. But when you dog sit, you get the pet and, and the, the other place, and they pay you. It's it's an amazing system. Yeah. I don't. I feel like I'm stealing every time it happens. Um, and so uh, I just got to spend the weekend doing that. So I am ten out of ten. That's such a win. Five star golden. Yes, I saw this. Um, yeah, I saw this diagram yesterday that made me laugh. And it's like it was like pets. And like it was like a scale, like fun and effort, and like they could like a they can live like like it's like a scatter plot, you know, and direction. And like your best friend's dog is like no effort and all fun. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's the best. It made me laugh. And in case you were wondering what was at the top of both fun and effort, it was dragons. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to ask uh, Khaleesi from Game of Thrones yes. about that. Um, my thing this week is pet related, and it's mainly because um, I'm fostering a large pit bull named Brian Johnson right now with my house. And um, Brian, yesterday we took him to the squash court, like at nighttime down the street, and like closed the gate so he could just like run around for free. For free, he didn't have to pay to run around. He ran around for free. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> what? Save him money in the long exactly. run. He can kind of invest in a house. How thoughtful later. are we as as mothers? Um, but we brought him to the squash courts, let him roam free, and he got the zoomies so hard because he had never had that much space to run before, and was like going crazy. And um, he's blind in one eye, so he crashes into like mostly people, not things, very often. Um, because like when he'll run at you, I didn't know that about. Oh him. yeah, it's it's amazing. He um will run at you, but like like to give you love but like can't like quite figure out exactly where you are in that so he'll just hit you <laughs> and um yesterday he hit me in the ankle so hard <laughs> and it's like bruised and hurts <laughs> oh i'm sorry <laughs> and i just think it's really funny that like this like sweet angel dog accidentally gave me an injury Oh, that's a fun injury. Yeah. It's nice at least when you have an injury or something you have to look down on and it has a good memory behind yeah. it, I guess. Yeah. Oh, sweet Brian. It was very funny. A Brian bruise. A Brian bruise. <laughs> Trademark. I like that. <laughs> um. So this week, I, speaking of potential injury, um, I really wanted to share an is that an ism okay let's hit it is that an ism this is a segment where taylor and i try to figure out is that an ism so 
I just wanted to share that I was actually at the beach yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it was a really nice day. It was, like, really warm out, but it got, like, really, really windy and very, like, overcast and cloudy. And we live on Long Island Sound. It is really gross, essentially. (laughs) Like, the beach usually just has this, like, very stagnant water that gets, like, pee warm as it low tide as it sits in the sun. And, like, but, but yesterday... Wow, we almost lived on the actual ocean. Like there was, there were like waves, wow. and the ocean moved, and it was just because it was like so windy yeah. and so stormy. Um, and my family and I, we were actually like renting like uh, paddle boards and kayaks, but the oh, nice. place we were renting them from pulled everyone in. They were like, "Don't, you know, it's too choppy right now. We don't want anyone out." Mm-hmm. We were like, "Fine." So this is like four p.m., and along come these. They had to be, like, early 20-something guys carrying the largest rainbow inflatable unicorn I have ever seen in my oh, life. Oh, that's like, hilarious. It had, to, it had to be able to fit, like, five, six people on it. So they're carrying this giant unicorn, unicorn, like, across the beach to try to get it in the water. And everyone's, like, cracking up because it's taking this team of these, <laughs> like, very excited boys to try to get it to the water. Now, mind you, again, it's, like, cloudy at this point. It's windy. Uh-huh. People are getting cold. We're putting sweaters on. Uh-huh. These guys are just, like, gung-ho going for it. And... They finally get this, like, giant unicorn to the water, and it, it keeps, like, blowing over, so they're just, it's just this, like, whole... It's an ordeal. Total mess. Yes. And so this um, this guy ends up just, like, sitting on it. They docked it, like, on almost, almost kind of like a pole that was right on shore, because mm-hmm. uh, the tide was also going out, mind you. They could just couldn't get it out. There were too many waves, so they were just... It was just sitting, like, right on the shore, and this one guy was just, like, sitting in it. Like, trying to keep it from blowing over. And he was just, like, alone in this, like, giant inflatable unicorn while his friends, I don't know where they went. They just left him in this unicorn. And I wanted to ask, just watching all of this happen was hysterical. Like, everyone on the beach was cracking up. Is that optimism? Is that optimism? (laughs) Is it optimism or is it stupidity? (laughs) What these men were doing. Like just like the the optimistic idea that they would be able to actually float on this enormous floaty in this stormy weather. Yeah, and enjoy their day, which like you could tell it was so big, Paula. Like it must have been such an ordeal to blow it. it, Like to blow it up, it must have taken so long. So just to get there, I'm sure like took them all day. And then when it got there, they had no anchor. They were and like this, we, we actually looked it up online. Because the, the owner of this the paddleboard and, and kayak place um, was nearby and was like, oh, I'm worried they're going to get it popped because it was just against the rocks, like right on the sand. Oh, my gosh. As far out as they could get it. <laughs> we looked it up and it was like a four or $500 float. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So then it became less like funny and more like, oh, wow, that's this might be stupid. But c- first it was no, very optimistic and fun. Then we I were think like, it's, oh, this might be a bad idea. I think it's optimism. I also would say that optimism and stupidity are not mutually exclusive like they can exist in the same space but for the in this particular circumstance I do think it's pure optimism um I would do that I think I would do that I would be like we're gonna blow this thing up we're gonna get out there it's gonna be fun no matter what like we're gonna make it work (laughs) we're just gonna sit and eat sandwiches on this like dock thing worst case scenario yeah like I love that. I, they were. I yeah. think they were just very determined to make it a good time on that float, no matter what. That's what it sounds like to me. I mean, they 
they did look like they were having a good time despite like all of the chaos that was happening with it. I, I don't know. Anyway, that was my ism of the week. I love it. Is that an we ism? Will, we will yes, call that it optimism. Is optimism, one hundred. <laughs> oh man, oh man. Hilarious. So shall we move on to our study for the week? Yes, let's do it. All right, so Paolo, what is the study that you have for us today? So this week, we have a highly relevant study, I would say, and it's entitled The Psychological Impact of Quarantine and How to Reduce It, a Rapid Review of the Evidence. Um, And it was a study that was conducted by the Department of Psychological Medicine, King's College in London. Okay. And was this from this year, since it has to do with, like, quarantine? Sure was. Oh, it sure was. Okay. So... (laughs) What was the study actually about? Yeah, so this was a rapid review. So it means that they basically identified a bunch of relevant studies on this specific topic, and then they selected the most appropriate studies that would be able to give them the information they were looking for. Then they analyzed the findings of all of these studies as a whole. Um, And so they call it a rapid review because in comparison to a regular review or a systemic review, as it's called in academia, um, a regular review takes like months many months to a year to um, produce, whereas a rapid review can be conducted in a matter of weeks. So this is a rapid review. And they did a review of the psychological impact of quarantine using these three electronic databases. They found 3,166 papers, and then they selected 24 of those papers to include in this review. Okay. So some of these studies were pulled from past pandemics or epidemics, and some of them were pulled from like very, very recent ones. So I'll just give you a couple of examples of what those are. There was a couple studies that they did based on quarantines that happened during the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic or pandemic. I think it was a pandemic. The H1N1 flu. Swine 09. Ebola. Sorry. I was in high school during that time, and that's what everyone called it, so... That is that was a that was the time. Yeah. So SARS, Ebola and H1N1 flu were the like main players in what they were studying, like where they were Mm -hmm. pulling these studies from. So for studies to be included in this review, they had to report on primary research. They had to be published in peer reviewed journals. They had to be written in English or Italian because those were the languages that were spoken by the authors. And then they had to include um, participants that were asked to enter into quarantine outside of a hospital environment for at least 24 hours. And then include data, obviously, on the mental illness or psychological well-being or factors associated with mental illness or psychological well-being um, during or after the quarantine. So those were that's, that's how they pared down to those 24 studies that they included in this rapid review. Okay. So... Of these papers that they included in the review, mm-hmm. what exactly, how did they actually define like what is quarantine and what does that mean? Yeah, so I think that we've been using the word quarantine a little differently in during this pandemic. So I'll just define the specifics, but quarantine is the separation slash restriction of movement of people who were potentially exposed to a contagious disease. And that's different than isolation, which is um, you go into isolation when um, you've been diagnosed or are sick and are separated from people who are not sick. Um, But I think that we've been using those terms interchangeably. And also, interestingly enough, 
Like the idea of the entire country being in quarantine means that the entire country was potentially exposed to a contagious disease, which I don't think people mm. have been thinking of it that way. Like I think people are quarantining to not get sick. <laughs> um, but really, you're quarantining because you've been potentially exposed and need to restrict the potential exposure of others by staying inside. So I think that's a that's a very just interesting uh, specification on the word of quarantine. Yeah. yeah. So it's really quarantine is is meant to kind of protect the overall health of everyone, yes. not just to limit your specific health once you've been exactly. diagnosed or not limit, but I guess manage your health once you've been right. diagnosed. Exactly. And so overall okay. for this study, they found that most of the studies, not surprisingly to me at least, reported the negative psychological effects of quarantine were post-traumatic stress symptoms, confusion, and anger. And um, some of these studies suggested long-lasting effects, so far beyond the end of quarantining. So what are the, the stressors, like the particularly difficult parts of quarantining that end up giving us these psychological impacts that the studies kind of review? Yeah. So uh, this list may sound a little familiar to you. Let's see. So we have the, the stressors can be the duration of the quarantine. So three of the studies showed that longer durations of quarantine were associated with poorer mental mental health, such as those um, PTSD symptoms, avoidance behaviors, so like engaging in vices to escape, drinking, smoking, video games. Oh, yeah. okay. So, it so the longer that it's mm-hmm. that it goes on, it's more likely that people will do things like smoke, drink, video games, yeah. whatever, whatever that particular vice yeah. may be. Chocolate at midnight. <laughs> Right. Those avoidant behaviors, exactly. Kind of distracting yourself from the situation at hand. And lastly, anger. Anger was associated Mm. with longer durations of quarantine. So duration of quarantine is one stressor. Mm. Fears of infection um, is another stressor. And participants in eight of the studies reported fear of getting sick or passing along sickness. Um, I think that's something we can identify with. Right. We've definitely seen that in our instance of this quarantine because the other studies were on other instances of quarantine that looked different than this COVID-19. So we're kind of pulling from whatever we've had from from the past, even though it was a different quarantine, maybe different scenario, maybe a different level of risk. This one, it seems like I wonder if fear of infection is even larger because of how contagious it is compared to some of the other diseases. Yeah. So the next stressor is frustration and boredom. This was reported across the board. How do you, uh, do you feel that frustration and boredom, Taylor? <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine that someone wouldn't be feeling both frustrated and bored uh, um, among a midst of other emotions, I'm sure. But yeah. but yeah, frustration and boredom just being, you know, very stuck in one place, I think, with p- other people, there's no way it wouldn't lead to these two things. So yeah, yeah it being across the board... Makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, next stressor is inadequate supplies. So does everyone remember the great toilet paper shortage of 2020? Because <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I still get stressed about that. I go into the <laughs> store and I'm like, should I be buying a toilet, toilet paper? paper now? It's so insane. Everyone needs to get a bidet. Anyways, inadequate supplies <laughs> is definitely a stressor. It's um, pretty frequent. And they gathered that inadequate supplies also was associated with anxiety which makes sense, and anger for, like, 
four to six months after the release from quarantine, which is cuckoo crazy. And then lastly, the last stressor is inadequate information. Um, and I'm sure that everyone has experienced this as a, tr- as a stress with, you know, new diseases. There's so many questions and there's not enough answers. So many participants in these studies reported that insufficient, unclear guidelines from public health authorities about actions to take and the purpose of quarantine was a huge stressor. Wow. So that is seems particularly relevant right now. Right. Exactly. So if that was a huge stressor, did they also look at stressors that occur right after the quarantine as well? Yes, they did. So there were two major post-core, if you will, stressors that they noticed. Um, so when you say post-quarantine, you mean like things that that started from the quarantine and then like continued on? Uh, yeah. So after the quarantine ended, there were stressors that like con- continued to be, if not were amplified after the quarantine ended. So one of them was finances. I think we all know what that is. Money, money, money. In the reviewed studies, financial loss due to being unable to work without any advanced planning seemed to have really long-lasting effects. And financial stress, as we know, can be a huge risk factor for symptoms of psychological disorders and anger and anxiety, which obviously following quarantine, if you're experiencing financial stress, then you could be at risk for those psychological impacts. Specifically, a study included that was conducted in Toronto post the 2003 SARS outbreak. They found that participants with a combined annual household income of less than $40,000 showed significantly higher amounts of post-traumatic stress and depressive symptoms. So that's just a specific example from one of the studies. Right, because it sounds like, I mean, it is. People who are already living paycheck to paycheck right, right. now are greatly affected by this. Yeah. And I think the really difficult thing about American ideals and American values and this situation is that because we're such an individualistic society, yeah. your failure to meet your needs or your family needs, family's needs falls on your shoulders like it's your responsibility you failed you didn't save you didn't so it's not about like we didn't respond as a like society or a system it's that like you as an individual are failing yeah yep yes even though this is a collective problem we're all experiencing but so those who are at the you know the bottom and the poverty poverty line are being definitely hit the hardest yeah 100 percent. yeah and then the next um stressor that continued post-quarantine was stigma so this yeah I thought this was really interesting too apparently several of the studies reported that participants that were quarantined faced stigmatization and rejection from people in their local neighborhoods so it's just the idea that like if you show that you are sick in any way by quarantining yourself that like people think of you as different or dirty or that in that infection idea of like if you are unhealthy you are also dirty yeah it, that really makes me think of like when you think of the hiv aids right. epidemic right and exactly. how that affected so many people and the mm-hmm. stigma that came with with being infected or or quarantining because you might have been you know in contact with someone who had hiv aids yeah 100 percent. that's exactly the stigma that they're talking about and 
they one of the studies was talking about how those that were quarantined during the Ebola epidemic in Liberia, they reported that stigma led to disenfranchisement of minority groups in communities. So people that were exposed were left behind um, when it came to lots of different social aspects, which is concerning because I think about how um, the majority of like people that have been infected by COVID have been in black and brown communities. And the idea of those groups being stigmatized further is scary, frankly, because that's it's already such a marginalized group in general. Right. They're less protected and mm-hmm. now also facing an additional problem of being stigmatized. Right. You know, I actually, it's really interesting as you say stigma because I have recognized in the, the smallest, weirdest way that I have a knee-jerk stigma reaction to ex- potential exposure. Yeah. And it's in the, so like when I see someone driving uh-huh. and they have a Florida license plate, my immediate, <laughs> my brain goes, why are you here? And I yeah. know that that's, it's, I know that that thought is crazy. Like yeah. it, that has nothing to do with whoever's in that car. And, right. but I think my, there's so much information about and news media about what's happening in Florida. Florida's not really managing the crisis correctly. Right. And there's so, so many risks of infection in that area. And so when I see a Florida license plate, my brain jumps to all of that. And yeah. it makes me think a certain way about that. And I, and I know that that has no like logical basis, but it's really interesting how I can like consciously notice that stigma in such a small area. So like right. how many other areas am I not noticing it subconsciously? And we as a culture are not noticing it. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I also feel that way when I see a Florida license plate. I'm like, go, go back. Go, go I'm away. Like, you shouldn't be here. Yeah. This is Connecticut. We're a safe state. And I'm, I, I, I recognized I recognized that defensiveness in myself. And I was like, ooh, like this is something out of like a movie where you start to like group uh, people off and mm. there's you know different levels and casts of society like yeah and I yeah. just I just wanted to separate myself from people from Florida and that is I, I don't actually want to do that but I think again the fact that my brain the like monkey brain reaction to want to do that right to be like wait you you're gonna put us at risk being here that obviously again that's not a cognitive like thought that I want to have but I'm I sure. noticed that my reaction went there so yeah so stigma is a thing. So stigma is a thing. So did the review suggest any ways to help lessen the negative impacts of quarantine? It sure did. So the authors were smart enough to clarify that the stressors during quarantine were unsurprising, but that the evidence that long-term psychological consequences were more concerning and should and can be lessened through strategic disaster planning for the future. So... There are several things that they suggested. Mm. One of them was keeping the quarantine as short as possible. So perhaps, obviously, but the stressors reported by participants could have had a more intense effect the longer they're experienced. So get me out of my house now. Yes. Essentially. If it's safe, essentially. Yeah. Um, And then giving as much information as possible. So helping folks to understand the risks and why they need to quarantine should be a priority. Personally, I think that this was something that uh, Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo here in New York City, did really well um, by holding his press conference every single day, giving like people were tuning in incredibly regularly to that, like every single day in New York City at the height of the crisis back in um, April and May. 
that was such a to get that information from Andrew Cuomo to hear what the city was doing to hear how things are going to hear the numbers I think it was really helpful to a lot of people here and it was something that helped us be able to reduce risk and are continuing to reduce risk here that's at least what I've observed and it, it also puts a lot of trust I think in your your governmental officials when they're able to give you adequate information as it's coming in so that's important (laughs) the next thing is providing adequate supplies so i'm sorry i just i'm having a really hard time not laughing um why because i feel that and it's not like a fun laugh it's like a bitter laugh yeah because i think that these last three things that you've mentioned, like keeping the quarantine as short as possible, providing the public with information, providing adequate supplies, like these are disaster preparedness things and interventions that seem like they're really on a like societal scale um, that the government should be really taking care of. Mm-hmm. And when I say I'm having a hard time laughing, like it's just very frustrating yeah. because I think these are out of our control and are all being horribly mismanaged. The ability to keep the quarantine short didn't work because we wanted it to be short or not at all happening. Um, So now it's incredibly long. The information was, it has been so confusing. Um, And then with supplies, there's been ongoing concerns about like PPE for people in in hospitals. And so I guess the, the frustrating thing that I'm feeling is these are ways that the authors are saying can lessen the psychological impacts of quarantine. Like, is there anything that we can do as individuals to help lessen these effects? Because these seem to be kind of out of our control right now. Yeah. So that's a that's a good point. One of the things that they did say was reducing boredom and improving communication. So this is something that we can do, which is the review mentioned to be sure to have contact, even if it's remote, with friends or family. Um, So activating your social network is imperative to getting through something like this. So once Mm. one study also suggested and then there's there's also obviously you can create your own social network and have that be super strong. Having regular Zoom calls, I think, is something that people have been doing, you know, things like that, Um, making sure to be in contact, have those phone calls, have those dinners over Zoom is important. But then there were also, of course, things that the study mentioned that the governmental officials could also put into effect to help. So one study suggested having a phone support line that was operated by psychiatric nurses that could be super beneficial during quarantine. Um, Obviously, people stuck in their homes, you know, it can get dark really fast. And so having um, a resource for those people to call is going to be important. Specified, I think, to quarantine is helpful. Another study mentioned having a phone line a phone hotline dedicated to providing those in quarantine with health information should any questions come up can be super helpful. So that way those people that are in quarantine don't feel isolated or forgotten by healthcare workers. This is the, we have a hotline, at least here in New York City, there's a hotline. And I know I've called it before. Like I know my roommates have called it before. It's, I think it's been helpful to um, get just specified information to make sure that like you know you don't panic when you're in your own house and you think you've been exposed and then evidence also suggested that support groups for those quarantined can be very helpful as well so Mm. and you can create your own support group you know that's something that you can do that is in your control is having a group of people that you rely on to talk about how you're doing during quarantine so it seems like it kind of comes down to 
maintaining connections and in gathering information so you're not kind of in your own head worried about what yeah to do or what's going on yeah and I think like I mean I'm just saying this from my own brain but I think the longer the quarantine the more important these things become because isolation from other people is never like we're social beings we want to have that connection so making sure that you do get it even if you are stuck in your house is important right the next thing that the review suggested could help alleviate a lot of these psychological impacts is that healthcare workers deserve special attention (laughs) so yeah for all that they're doing right and so the review suggests that Healthcare workers, like the general public, can be negatively affected by stigmatizing attitudes of others. So it's possible that not only are they more exposed because they're dealing with these patients on a consistent basis, but it's also possible that healthcare workers are concerned about overwhelming their workplace and creating extra work for their coworkers should they become understaffed because they are sick. And I know that that's something that, like, people were feeling so hard here in New York City. Like, the worry that you are going to get sick yourself and you won't be able to help when you see how tired your coworkers are, how much, how long the shifts are. Like, it's just, there's so many things that healthcare workers are dealing with during pandemic. And I right. I think that it they, they need that special attention, not just from, you know, obviously at least hospitals here in New York City were getting meals like they never were for lack of food. They always had food donated by companies and people, but they also deserve like a level of support from the government, whether it be financial, whether it be a hotline, whether it be, you know, there's so many different things that I don't know right. that Some sort, healthcare I, workers are getting. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine that they wouldn't have a higher likelihood of PTSD right. with seeing, I mean, you're, we talk so much about the front lines. Healthcare workers are on the front lines. Yeah. And I think very soon teachers will be on the front lines right. in a different way. But you know, right now it's you are seeing people pass away from this disease. You're working actively. You're putting yourself at risk. You're seeing the kind of systemic impacts of not being there, not being enough supplies yeah. or information or finances, um, whether that be to supply the things that the hospital needs or for patients to even be concerned about their own finances of their own care. Mm-hmm. And then the impacts of loved ones not being able to be in the hospital and support people through that, like being able to be a a firsthand witness to all of those things, I think is very much so like being in a war. Oh, and just yeah. because it may not have that typical warfare that we think of where you're on a battlefield, I think it just is a different, it's a battlefield in a different context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the effects of that are definitely going to be Probably this this isn't going to be a time that any healthcare worker forgets. Like almost no. like when we were all you know present for the twin towers and everyone remembers where they were. Like I think every healthcare worker um, yeah. for the duration of their career will have very vivid memories of mm-hmm. you know where they were in response to this and what they were doing and what they were going through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's for certain. And then the last thing that the review suggested could help relieve some of the impact is the idea that altruism is better than compulsion. So break that down a little bit when you're saying so altruism is better than compulsion. By that you mean like doing something for the point of it being good is better than being told to do it. Exactly. That's exactly what it means. Yeah. 
So while no research was found which tested the difference in effects of mandatory versus voluntary quarantine, the review just mentioned that feelings of altruism, which is doing something for the benefit of others, can make stressful situations easier to undergo. So if the public were to know and have it be reinforced by people that are informing the public that quarantine is helpful to keep others safe and that health officials are so grateful to the public for engaging in quarantine, that can help reduce the mental health effect of those being quarantined. I think this is something that has helped me a lot, (laughs) Um, is the idea that like, I know that this is the right thing to do, not necessarily for myself, but for the the well-being of everyone else like the idea of being in an effort a larger effort is unifying one and also it it feels empowering honestly it takes away the like restriction of quarantine it makes it feel like I'm doing something really good for the health of others and so the review did point out that while altruism is a great incentive it may not have as great of an effect if those quarantining don't have adequate information on how to keep the people that they live with safe. So that's going to be really important as well is making sure that while people are quarantining, they can also keep the people that they are quarantining with safe as well. Right. So knowing that you're quarantining and that it's helping your your roommates or your family members or your kids right. and it's kind of contributing to the people that you care about mm-hmm. as well as the greater whole exactly you know i i find this now like for limitations of this study i think the biggest limitation is that this quarantine is entirely different than any other quarantine we've seen so far yeah so you know we're taking evidence from you know past experiences or or ways that we we or societies have handled quarantines in the past Mm -hmm. this quarantine looks entirely different it's like a worldwide um far-reaching thing that has has impacted i think pretty much almost everyone in the world in some way and has led to a lot of different quarantines i think that in hearing how important it is for the populations to be informed and understand what's going on Mm -hmm. I get very angry because I feel that like the way that our information has been traveling within the past several years uh like through social media but all through all through different different platforms the media messages are confusing and they counter each other and they're polarized and I just if we're saying that in order to mitigate or like lessen the effects psychologically of this like really stressful quarantine experience that we need to inform populations and have them really understand like what are the black and white facts and how can we help each other and how can we have like you said that unifying message of like if I do this I'm protecting myself and others helping my family helping the world right now we're getting these really mixed media messages and the idea of quarantine and masks um has been touted both as protection and a way to help other people, but then also as an infringement on rights. And as like, so the fact that how we respond to this uh, has been responded to federally as um, poorly. It's been responded, it's been responded to poorly and it's been polarized, I think has just increased the psychological stressors for everyone. I think, um, I mean, 
if there wasn't already distrust amongst the American public, at least, this will only cause greater distrust because it's lives are on the line in a larger like like a larger amount of lives are on the line than before I think it's right. deeply sad that like we are this polarized and honestly that it's I feel like it's like a wow it's come down to this like it's come down to hundreds of thousands of lives being lost and even that there's skepticism and a sense of distrust around whether or not the lives that are lost are actually lost from the quarantine or whether they're be or sorry are actually lost from COVID-19 or whether they're being the numbers are being conflated or how to respond to it like we're having different messages about whether we should be using aspirin or hydroxychloroquine (laughs) and like there's just I think a lot of misinformation it's not very clear and I like to like I think sometimes of like the way that we responded to the usage of cigarettes and nicotine in America. And we had these kind of blanket statements Mm -hmm. um, that people were responsible for getting out. And the way that the public responded to providing information about what the impact of cigarettes are, does what the impact of cigarettes is on health overall Mm -hmm. and why we should be avoiding it and why we shouldn't have youth like gravitating towards it. There was a, a campaign that we did on a like national federal level that really reduced cigarette smoking in America. And I think that had the campaign of how to respond to COVID-19 been managed differently with more uh, direct and clear messages that people would have been feeling more safe, more in control, more able to, to feel confident in what they're doing. And right now there's just so much confusion and I can only imagine that like this specific quarantine is like is because it's on a grander scale is is even more difficult than the other quarantines I I think quarantines across time like as information emerges as you're doing studies and as you're learning about diseases like it evolves and then there is a a level of safety that sets in once you start to understand what you're actually working with that's happened with like most viruses or or diseases across time but particularly with with this situation the even though we are getting this scientific information that's coming out we're not we're not updating that and it's not actually mitigating what people are already thinking that's false and I think that's the that's the problem here is as we're learning instead of taking that knowledge and like infusing it into what we know to help us clarify our responses unify how we handle the situation instead those that information is now being like rejected or being distrusted and so the science that's you know emerging and coming out about this isn't really actually being listened to respected yeah yeah it's there's just so many different angles that information is coming from and I think the building in a distrust in science over the past I mean eight years I would say it's been you know I at least more conservative people have been fighting against a lot of scientific data for a long time whether it be climate change whether it be like the right to choose all of those things kind of battle science and creating a general distrust in science in the public is 
I mean, it's just waiting for disaster when there is something that only science can help with, which right now I really think that that's the case. And yet there's a huge distrust. So people don't know what to listen to. And just confirmation bias all around is, I think, what's happening a lot because of how we have been thinking about science over the past four four to ten years in the United States. In the United States, at least. That was another limitation of this study was that because it was so broad and they pulled from all these different places that there were quarantines, they couldn't really... um, take into account like cultural impacts but I think that the cultural impacts at least of being in the United States it's interesting to look at with all of the the they probably amplify this because of what it's saying make puts people at more risk it seems like right now United States is like the hot plate for all of these Uh risk factors so we're just (laughs) essentially going to have an entirely traumatized population (laughs) from here on out everything is doomed yeah. I mean, it isn't. It's not doomed, I will but say it's scary. This is this is my, I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this when I think back on, and this is totally like my personal anecdotal evidence, but how people responded to the quarantine in like early April. I think there was a lot more actual quarantining, a lot more separation, a lot more fear of leaving the house. Um, and the actual risk you know, it did dip for a while when we did start to effectively quarantine, quarantine. But, you know, now we're seeing these numbers climb again. We are now in mid-August and, you know, we're, we're seeing that risk be very prevalent. But I almost feel that like the difference now, I mean, we have obviously a massive economy issue that's yeah. weighing in here of jobs and getting kids to school. And what does that mean and how can we continue to function as a society while maintaining quarantine? Can we? Yeah. Um, I think there's these pieces weighing on. But I also think there's a, a part of people quarantining that just kind of have a little, hit a limit where they're just like, I just don't know if I care anymore. And you're seeing more and more people who were posting like, okay, wear your masks, stay, in st- stay inside, stay alone. Like these standards that we had in like maybe April, maybe early May have begun to relax. I think part of it's like the summer weather, part of it's people being outside and the reduced risk of being outside. But I also think those those relaxed standards are probably more relaxed than they should be. But part of it is this. It's exhaustion. This is again, it's a fatigue yeah. right? of like trying to maintain this level of caution that we've never had to maintain before and for this how it totally long impacts our day-to-day lives. yeah and I, I do think that if we had done this if, if this had been executed better um, by the general public and led better um, by our government we wouldn't have had to have done this for as long and we wouldn't have the level of fatigue that we do but um, I think it's just been it, it's just been exhausted in the media it's been exhausted by all the conflating ideas and there's just a lot of tension around it right now. It's very strange. It's very strange being in New York City when I know that the rest of the country is going through insanity and absolute hell because I feel like we're, we're chilling now. New York City is chilling. Like people are still wearing their masks. They're still being safe, but it feels closer to normal than than what it was previously 
but it was very intense for a couple months. And now knowing that the rest of the country is like half chilling and also like going through hell at the same time, I can't even imagine. I truly can't imagine what that's like. Yeah, I think it's really tough. Yeah. I think it's I think it's hard to to be this like unified country right now when we have different areas of our country that are going through different levels of this. Yeah. Um, and dealing with it differently than other places. <sighs> yeah. It's so much. It is so much. But to I guess to kind of just summarize the the pos- I guess the takeaways from the study that felt helpful or organizing to me were the the only the, the biggest things they were saying to like mitigate the this, these psychological effects of quarantine are really to make sure we are actively maintaining our social network. Yeah. yeah. Um and and keeping ourselves informed. And I think the keeping yourself informed can be a balance, right? You want to make sure you have factual information that's something that helps you organize your day, mm-hmm. but not keeping yourself informed to the point that you're just like overanalyzing over the media yeah. and hearing all sorts of that can be its own stressor, but keeping yourself informed as to like what can I wipe what cleaner can I use that I can wipe down that's going to make me feel that I'm keeping those in my home safe yep um so ha- being able to have access to general knowledge like that to keep yourself safe and to just keep yourself connected try to find a normalcy within yeah within this because it we don't know how long this is going to last yeah um if anybody wants a suggestion on where to go for some like fun lighthearted but also really informative content um I would recommend the podcast uh, Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. It's a wonderful podcast. podcast. Yeah, it's a great podcast led by Dr. Sydney McElroy um, and her husband, Justin McElroy. And they talk about medical history and they also talk about, you know, current findings in history and it's in, in medicine. And it's very good and very funny. And um, I think Sydney is an absolute genius. Genius. So go check it out. Sawbones. Taylor, shall we move on to the Google Diaries? Yes, let's move on to our segment for today. Paula, do you have a Google Diary entry you would like to share with us today? Uh, yes. Yeah, yesterday I looked up, um, can you die from old wine? <laughs> <laughs> um, what? I okay. We had. I need context. Uh, I had a friend brought over rosé like two weeks ago, and I forgot about it, and I didn't put it in the fridge. And yesterday, I was going to that friend's house, and I didn't know if I should bring it. Um, and then I had to look it up to see if anybody would die. Well, you only get it only gets better with age, right? No, it gets really bad. Um, I gave <laughs> I gave some to Dave, and he drank it, and he said this is horrible. So I. I just put it down the sink and called it a day. But I did learn that you you can die from old wine, but it has to be like very old wine, not like two week old wine. So you you may not you may not die from old wine. You'll just be unhappy uh, that you've left on your counter. You'll just it just shows your level of desperation to drink at that moment yeah. if you choose to, to drink really old yeah, wine. Exactly. Which I have done. My my I used to live with my mother for a while after after being twenty one, uh-huh. and she would do this thing where she would open a bottle of wine and decide she didn't like it, and then would just like leave it on the counter. Mom, and no, it would. She would just be like, I, "Well," and so then I felt you know sad for the wine that it was going to be left you there. Felt so, so I sad then for became the wine. wow. I I then would be the one who was responsible for drinking all of the wine before <laughs> it went bad, or it being dumped in the sink, and so I drank. 
a lot of wine that was definitely questionable. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What's your Google Diary entry for the week? My Google Diary entry for this week was, is the cotton-eyed Joe racist? Oh. Um, is it racist? <laughs> is it racist? Because I'm Oh, like, I guess it could be. Yeah. I do see a world in you know, which we, possible. You know, we, we grew up thinking of that song, cotton-eyed Joe, and I just was wondering, like, where is that from? Like, there's so many, I think, things that we grew up with not analyzing really and then when you look back on them with a frame now you're like wait that was really bad and we shouldn't have been saying that or singing that or doing that Mm -hmm. and I think I was just wondering like what because I'm thinking cotton eyed Joe I'm wondering if that had anything to do with like like cotton cotton. yeah picking cotton and and slavery and what I learned was very mixed I think it, it doesn't seem that like Google had a really clear understanding of where the song came from. But what it walked me through was that it, it did, it's probably not racist because it did actually originate with black slaves, um, in songs that they used to sing before the civil war. Oh, interesting. The, the lyrics from this and the song from it are actually like really, really old, but there's so much speculation as to where it comes from. I would love to do a like thorough (gasps) investigation of it. Oh, that sounds like interesting, but it did say, uh, potential meanings for the song maybe that the person the cotton eye joe is about someone who is totally like wasted <gasps> and cotton eye would have to do with like the symptoms of being very intoxicated oh. or or that the cotton eye joe is a song about an std <gasps> oh which my I, gosh I'm, is a little gross that like us as like you know Small children were dancing to a potentially a song about, about an STI. STD. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. That's definitely possible that it was about that, though. Fascinating. Um, I want to know. Brings me like some ring around the rosy vibes yeah. of just like very potentially dark meanings behind very lighthearted songs. But I think um, that yeah, may be that the case my... for all childhood songs at this point. That's what I've learned. Happy birthday, man. Real dark. Yeah. Real dark, dude. Dark. Uh, all right. Well, that's... Mary had a little lamb, and now he's probably at the slaughterhouse. No, and... Taylor, no. <laughs> the twinkle, twinkle little star burst, and now I hate this. You know, this is terrible. We, have only, we only have so much time left to live before the star becomes a black hole. Cool. We're sending you into the week with just good energy, my friends. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Steady Buddies. We'll see you next Tuesday. Uh, bye guys. Study Buddies was created by Paula Sanchez Abreu and Taylor Collins. Our graphic design was done by Monica Ray Summers Gonzalez, and our intro song was composed by singer-songwriter Caught In Between. You can follow Study Buddies on Instagram at studybuddies.com and email the show at studybuddiespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>